The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, I'm Eric Savitz, Associate Editor for Technology at Barron's. Welcome to Barron's Live. I am happy to be joined today by Erica Clower, who's the Technology Portfolio Manager at Jenison Associates. Uh, Eric, you've been there for quite a while now, right? 20 years at Jenison, I think? That's right, 20 years. And before that, spent some time on the other side of the streets as a uh, semiconductor analyst um, at a couple of places that don't, some of them don't exist anymore, right? You were at Alex Brown, I think at one point. It's true. I started off at a, a little boutique shop in Baltimore known as Alex Brown, which ultimately was bought by Bankers Trust and then by Deutsche Bank. So yes, I've gone from small regional firm to big international banking behemoth. <laughs> well, small or large, um, no matter if you were running technology, a technology portfolio this year, it has been a very difficult time. Um, there have been almost literally no place to hide. And so I, I'd love to get your sense as we start here on what we've gone through, where we are in this process. Obviously the Fed has not been very friendly um, and the macro economy has not been very friendly to technology shares. But give, give us your sense on how you think about the, the environment we're in. Well, Eric, you know, I think our approach at Jenison has always been to start from the bottoms up. And then we'll look at the macro a bit, but really our, our focus is on the, the bottoms up approach to investing. And I would say that there have been some pretty big headwinds facing the entire technology industry this year. And some of those headwinds will persist into 2023 as well. The first is that we had a big COVID hangover during COVID, whether it was a consumer at home or a business, people were very intent on upgrading their personal computers, their smartphones to be able to operate remotely. And so we've had to cycle through that period of extraordinary COVID spending. The other thing that happened during COVID was we realized the fragility of the entire supply chain. And so companies are in the process right now of figuring out how to make sure that they have enough inventories to meet demand mm -hmm. and also that their supply is not going to be disrupted by something, an exogenous event such as COVID. But even more so, we've also had a third headwind come in, which is political risk. Will there be a disruption to the supply chain because you only are making your product out of XYZ location? And so that's been another headwind that has been a problem this year and will persist into 2023. And then I think the um, the fourth problem that we've had, the fourth headwind that is also one that will, will continue is we've had a shortage of engineers and companies have had to grapple with hiring enough engineers and, and employees and those employees are more expensive. All of those factors are pretty significant in terms of their implications for growing revenues at a uh, at a rate that is equal to what we've seen over the last couple of years, and then it also calls into question the cost structure for a lot of companies. So let, let's dig in on a few of those. So I want to talk a little bit about the supply chain issues because 
So we've, we've gone through some dramatic swings on the supply chain. We were in a period when there was a shortage of effectively everything. Um, but in particular, for this, uh, this uh, uh, industry, semiconductor components were in short supply. In particular, like the cheapest, um, like most basic kinds of components were in short supply, which made it hard to make anything, right? Appliances, cars, computers, everything was, uh, was affected by this. But it does appear that for most components, that part of the issue has been largely fixed either by a combination of better production on the manufacturing side and a little bit from slightly less demand. And so do you think we're, are we past that issue largely? So Eric, I think that you're right that the, the supply chain tightness has certainly eased. However, it's interesting because our team at Genesis was in Silicon Valley about two weeks ago and we met with one of the biggest semiconductor equipment companies in the world. And they complained that they are still not able to ship pieces of equipment to customers that have been waiting for months and months and months because there still are components in short supply. Nevertheless, the, the consensus amongst all the companies that we've talked to is the worst is behind us with regards to component shortages. And that, by the way, is true not only for the traditional technology consumers of semiconductors, but also others, whether it be automotive or medical equipment or, or other applications for semiconductors. Okay, so and then another element of this uh, mix that's I think sometimes confusing to people is this question about labor, right? So labor is a big part of the inflation picture and there have been a shortage of engineers seemingly forever, right? So like there's a, and that's driven up salaries for engineers. We have of course started to see some technology companies, a fair number of technology companies start to reduce staff. Um, now. My sense is that more of what they're cutting is not engineers, but uh, sales and marketing and sort of, you know, per support personnel and things like that. But I, I wonder if you see any signs of that aspect of the problem getting any better. Um, does the I mean, it's a weird way to solve the problem is to have the economy be weaker. But like the is there any sign that that problem begins to alleviate it all in 23? Well, first, I think the question is an excellent one, which is really trying to tease out the differences and the shortages of labor. Because on one hand, you have engineering shortages, and then you have also your sales and marketing department, and then you also have your manufacturing labor. And so if we look at each one of those three buckets, on the highest end engineering side, it's still pretty tight. The one um, thing that has changed, however, is that as the appetite to support private equity and startups has diminished. Some of the most talented engineers from some of those big startups have come loose to be able to um, join some of the, the companies that are looking. In the middle, the sales and marketing um, side of the equation, I would say that part of the market is where you're starting to see some headcount reduction. Um, so there could be some easing in, in the costs on that side. But on the labor side of things like assembly and test, that market remains very, very robust. And one of the other headwinds that we're seeing is as companies are trying to diversify their, their supply chain and having more than one location for manufacturing, that's where they're encountering higher per hour labor costs for um, some of the back-end factors. Interesting. Okay. So, so um, let's talk a little bit about another part of the equation, which is um, earnings, right? So we've had 
we, we've been going through this period where uh, people have begun to bring down their numbers uh, for, uh, for initially for the, the, the final quarter of the year, which is about to wrap up, um, and then into 2023. But there is some concern on, uh, among some investors that we really haven't gone through that process far enough. And that raises real valuation questions, because if you're computing PEs on forward earnings, but your forward estimates are wrong, your stock is really like more expensive. Yes. So, so how do you feel about this de-risking process? Because right? there's sort of two, the way I, I think of it often is like, there's sort of two parts to the risk, like in, a, in technology. One is just valuation and valuations have certainly arguably been de substantially de-risked, right? Valuations are a lot lower, but earnings are still coming down. And so how do you think about what we're going to see um, from the group in as we get Q4 numbers starting, you know, a month from now or so? So in general, what I would say is that I think that the earnings climate for next year is, is more challenging for all the reasons that we discussed. And the one we didn't discuss also was the strength of the U.S. dollar, um, yes. which makes our goods so much more expensive um, on an international basis. So one of the things that I think is important is to recognize that the top line growth may not be as strong at the same time that your costs are going up. So that really sets up for a pretty difficult climate in, in 23. I think, and I, my, my teammates at, at Jenison think that we still have cuts to go. We're not done yet with the de-risking of those estimates. We have seen certain sub-segments acting very well to earnings cuts where the stocks have either been holding or maybe even go up on some of those earnings cuts, which is traditionally the sign of a bottom. Yet for other companies, particularly in some of the high multiple areas where companies are trading at you know, 8, 10, 12 times revenue, the, uh, the acceptance of earnings cuts is not as forgiving and we'll see big swoons downward. So I think the approach has to be one of looking at valuation perhaps on a price to sales or price to book value basis to remove some of the volatility of the earnings and then juxtapose that along with the magnitude of the earnings cuts to see whether or not a stock has has potentially reached a bottom. For so, us, however, oh, sorry. No, go ahead. I was going to say, how, having said all this doom and gloom, however, I think that we are also very excited about some subsegments that we think can grow very well this year in spite mm -hmm. of the headwinds. Things like medical technologies, energy technologies, transportation technologies, factory automation technologies, uh, 5G technologies. There are some areas that appear to be poised to grow in spite of a much more difficult top line climate. So, so that's helpful. So I want, so I was going to say like, you know, and, and um, in preparation for this interview, um, you know, I have a few ideas on some of the things that you like and um, it sounds like if when you talk about like the very high multiple uh, names, which, you know, tend to be enterprise, inter all the enterprise software names that we're quite familiar with, a lot of them are still trading at like 10, 15 times forward sales. Now, they're, a lot of them are growing fast, um, but you're not getting rewarded for that right now. Would you, would you tend to avoid those? Like, are you tempted by that sector at all at this phase? Well, one of the other things I think one has to look at and that is year-over-year -year revenue growth. Right. And when we reach a hard bottom, 
comparing, for example, the software companies in general to the semiconductor companies in general. And of course, there are variations within those segments. But in general, semiconductor companies should see the worst year-over-year revenue growth, either in the current quarter that we're in or the first quarter. And stocks tend to bottom in technology in the quarter when you see the worst year-over-year revenue growth. Unfortunately for software, because this year has continued to be a fairly good year for demand up until just recently, we're going to have very difficult comparisons until the third or fourth quarter of 2023, until the second half of next year. So in our view at Jensen, there are certain segments that, that seem closer to a bottom than other within the technology sector. Okay. So, uh, and you just hinted at one, which is, is semiconductors. Um, and I know that's an area where you've got a few names that you like. Mm-hmm. Um, one, one, one stock that you like, which has been uh, at times extremely popular, but at, this has had a very difficult year this year is NVIDIA. And mm-hmm. you know, NVIDIA remains, I think, the single largest um, market cap company in semiconductors. It is a fascinating story where, you know, kind of a graphics chip company has become like a much, much bigger player. What's gone wrong for NVIDIA this year? And why do you still like it as we head into 23? So as it turns out, um, NVIDIA was not immune to some of the macro headwinds either. Right. Um, when we talk about the COVID hangover, many people were stuck at home. And so they bought game cards to entertain themselves during that period. So we had a big pull through of for, for demand for game cards during COVID. Layer on top of that, a business that was not core to NVIDIA's R&D efforts, and that is cryptocurrencies. Mm-hmm. Um, as it turns out, those same game cards can also be used for crypto mining. And that artificially lifted the demand picture for the gaming segment of the business, which is over half of the company's revenue. However, the reason that we at Genesis still really like NVIDIA is because we see NVIDIA as the most important enabler of next generation technologies led by their core expertise in parallel processing. Parallel processing is very similar to the way that the brain learns new things. Um, So for example, as children, we did not learn language from looking up words in a dictionary. We learned language from repetition. So that parallel processing expertise is the core that NVIDIA is leveraging, not only in the gaming area, um, but also in things like data center and autonomous driving, which have multiple decades ahead of growth. And even in the gaming segment, we think we've reached a hard bottom. The company has written down some inventories of old products. It's leaned out the uh, channel and it has several new products coming in 2023 that we think will drive revenue growth. And at the same time, as you pointed out earlier, which was such an important point, technology companies may be cutting sales and marketing, but they're really not cutting research and development. And so a lot of that research and development is happening in the data center, which really puts NVIDIA in an enviable position to see its revenues in that segment growing. And I would point out that the company in the last quarter made um, and then slightly beat the, um, the earnings expectations and also lifted the guidance a little bit more for the January quarter than people were initially anticipating. And that was in spite of a very difficult China environment. China demand fell short of the company's expectations, but the demands from the, the demand from the other regions of the world were strong enough to offset that China weakness. 
And that trend is continuing into the current quarter that we are, we are in as well. So summarize, I would say, you know, NVIDIA had a difficult time this year because of macro, but the company's dominance, market share, and ability to provide a differentiated solution and disrupt industries is very much still intact. So, you know, on, uh, that's interesting. I, I, there's a couple of fascinating elements to the, the NVIDIA story here. Like one, I, I, you, know, you talk about data center and data center has been interesting, right? Cloud, the cloud players, the, the, the large cloud players, in particular Amazon and Microsoft, um, in the most recent quarter, saw their growth decelerate some. And mm -hmm. uh, that created uh, like a, you know, sort of a brief moment of like uh, a freak out is the way I described it as I was writing about it. And and uh, and yet the the growth rates, so you know, my, so I think um, I forget the exact number. Azure still, you know, disappointingly still growing more than forty percent, right? So like you have a fantastic growth in the in cloud computing demand still. It's it's not accelerating quite as much as it was, but it does seem. And then you have like substantial capital spending by all the players because you can't possibly, uh, you know, kind of you need physical. Uh, it's sort of uh, kind of. We, we know that this is true, although I think sometimes people forget the cloud is a bunch of servers and routers and networks uh, networks. And so uh, as you grow these companies, you know, these in these 20, 30, 40 percent range, we just saw this with Oracle just a, a few weeks ago uh, where they're ramping up their capital spending. And that would seem to be a good thing for NVIDIA and a whole bunch of other people. I wonder how you think about that factor and if there's any other ways you look at well, it's a, there's a, there's a lot to unpack there, but I think that the um, well, you make an excellent point, which is that the growth in data center has difficult compares, just like we were talking about. You know, right. the company is by definition, with the law of large numbers, facing some deceleration, and um, also there is some pricing uh, pressure for some of the data center companies in terms of um, cloud that we haven't seen before. Yet the demand still looks pretty good on that side. But I think what's happening in the um, in the data center business for NVIDIA is that the market is broadening out to include not only the hyperscalers, but also mm -hmm. enterprises um, really being able to use parallel processing to advance their businesses. And I would say, you know, what, what are examples of this? One would be in healthcare, the ability to accelerate drug development um, or, for example, an insurance to underwrite risk. Right. Uh, or in retail to be able to understand real-time customer consumption patterns. So the utility of, of parallel processing, as it turns out, is, is very important to many, many different industries, not just the hyperscalers. So that is really what's helping a company like NVIDIA right now is just a broadening out of the customer base. Yeah. And, and this is an interesting moment in, in, in AI generally, right? We've got people have been talking about AI for a long time. We recently had this flurry of these generative AI tools like chat, GBT, uh, where people are, I think, you know, uh, the average person who is not writing AI code has been able to see sort of the power of, um, of artificial intelligence and that plays directly to NVIDIA's strike. So I want to I talk a little bit also about uh, the opportunity in automotive. Um, which, as as you were saying earlier, has been like one place where there has been continued strong demand, um, where there's been shortages of components. That seems to be getting a little bit better, but uh, the future feels like it's you know when it comes to the automotive business is 
um, autonomous and uh, electrical, um, battery-powered. How are there other ways that you're thinking about trying to take advantage of of that trend? Is certainly something Nvidia is really zeroing in on and on finding ways to play in the automotive market. Are there other plays there in like maybe in semis or some other way that you're looking at that opportunity? Yes. So the electrification and self-driving aspect of, 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 of the automotive industry is very important because we're still in such early days. Um, if we look at the fleets of cars that are electrified on the road today, we're still less than 10% in most countries. And the um, self-driving aspect of the industry is evolving. So we have some aspects of self-driving that are more pervasive than others, but each one of those generations is going to be more and more demanding of semiconductors. And I think the other thing that's very interesting is it's not just about cars, but it's also about delivery vehicles, being right. able to um, have self-manned delivery vehicles within a factory and or one day having those uh, self-manned vehicles delivering groceries and mail at nighttime to um, relieve congestion in, in major cities. So certainly NVIDIA has a big effort in that business. There's going to be extraordinary growth in that business in 2023 because it's growing off a very small base. But the the opportunity for many semiconductor companies goes beyond just what's offered to NVIDIA. Right. There are chips in there, whether it be memory chips, analog chips, microcontrollers, sensors, um, all of the semiconductor industry that services that business will see an uplift for growth over a multi-year period. Um, and so even a company as basic as a Micron, looking at the memory content within a car, well, there is an opportunity there too. Right. Yeah, they've talked about, Micron's has talked about the, the content in a fully autonomous car uh, in terms of memory content would be like orders of magnitude higher than, I mean, historically cars didn't have any memory, right? Or maybe in the radio, they have any memory. That's uh, but, right. But, but now it's, it's becoming a, a huge part. So I want to talk about a couple of other names. So um, another chip name that you've liked uh, has been Broadcom, which is also a complex and interesting story of like a broad scale semiconductor company that also uh, hidden inside or not hidden exactly is a pretty big software business. What is it that you like about Broadcom? So one of the things that we always focus on at, at Jenison is execution of management. Mm -hmm. And I would say Broadcom has the, one of the most exceptional track records of execution that we've seen really across all of the companies in our, in our portfolios. Um, the company has a very simple um, and repeatable plan for success that we've seen uh, executed over time. And that is basically looking for semiconductor businesses that have consolidated where they can come in, be the number one or number two player. They can put a lot of R&D into that business and be able to bring out products, work more closely with customers, really avoid the distribution channel and work directly with customers, um, which gives them higher visibility, higher margins. And they've done this um, for almost 20 different business divisions within semiconductors at, at Broadcom. At the same time, they also have taken that model and extended that into software as well. So mm -hmm. now the portfolio is about a third software and two thirds semiconductors. Right. The companies, just in, in terms of where's the proof in the pudding, the company has always said, well, you know, we'll grow our 
semiconductors, maybe in the mid single digits. Right. And on a compound annual growth rate organically, they've done double that. So just very, very consistent execution, extremely high profitability, extremely high free cash flow. And so, and the stock is not terribly expensive because of the fact that it does a lot of things. It's not a pure play on automotive or data center. It, it does a lot of different things, but it does a lot of different things quite well. Um, so this is a company we think can be held for a long period of time. The CEO just uh, was awarded a new compensation structure that is inextricably tied to the share performance. Mm-hmm. And um, the, the, uh, the CEO will receive a significant bonus if the company achieves its 15% company annual growth rate targets for the share price return, excluding the dividends, and an even bigger bonus if he gets that up to 19%. So we also like that his um, incentives are aligned with ours at Jameson for our, our returns. Yeah, and he's a, you know, Hawk 10, the CEO, is a um, kind of a singular figure who's who's really uh, carved out, uh, he's built basically like a very large semiconductor company but from what used to be a relatively small player. Um, he's also very acquisitive on your point about execution. Uh, they've been able to um, to do uh, M- like one M&A deal after another uh, without uh, and do it effectively. Uh, which I, you know, I think in some there are there are other tech companies which we won't uh, get into here that uh, the the prospect of additional M and A worries uh, the street, and I think that's less true for Broadcom. That's absolutely right because he has done such a good job with each and every one of the acquisitions, delivering substantial shareholder value. And I think the other thing that's interesting is that. People don't know this fact, but actually Broadcom is the only company in the world that has a sole source long-term supply agreement with Apple. Apple Mm. usually keeps its options open. And to wit on the company's technology leadership, there are no other companies that have that. So that really speaks to the technology leadership at at Broadcom, um, as well as, as their ability to execute for a very demanding customer. So I want to touch on, um, you know, I, I know that uh, uh, when you when you look at the future of the semiconductor industry, one of the interesting kind of cross currents right now is we've had um, the number of key players uh, reduce capital uh, spending plans for next year. Mm-hmm. That's hurt the semiconductor equipment guys. But at the same time, while they're cutting plans for next year, they've got they're building out, you know, whether it's Intel or Micron, a few other people are building gigantic new fabs. So we're adding capacity um, while we're cutting capacity, right? And I think that creates like a little bit of confusion about the timeline um, on the outlook for semiconductor equipment. It does feel like to me, my my instinct is that um, maybe it's an interesting time to look at those names. I know that you, there's one at least that you like in ASML, um, talk a little bit about how you view that group because it's sort of heading into a weird year. It's like orders are going to be bad. They have a ton of backlog. So maybe the numbers won't be that bad. How do you view the equipment names? So you are absolutely right, Eric. I think it is such a fascinating time for semiconductor equipment. And we've really just become more involved in the group in the last six months or so, uh, waiting for what we would think would be the traditional entry point for semiconductor equipment, which is business is awful. And that's the time you're supposed to buy them. Um, so at the same time, you're right that we have two 
fascinating factors that we've never seen before to, to, to dynamics at play right now. One is that memory companies are cutting their orders, but at the same time you have logic companies um, with five and three nanometer trying to pull in and get delivery of their equipment. And mm -hmm. as we talked about before, some of that equipment is being retarded by lack of availability of some semiconductors. So there are a lot of pushes and pulls within the equipment industry right now. Layer on top of that, many of these companies have been uh, excluded from being able to ship to China for certain leading edge technologies for, for gate all around technologies, which is really used for the most advanced semiconductor manufacturing. Mm -hmm. So the expectation at the beginning of this year is that 2023 would have capital spending up maybe five to 10%. We've now adjusted that to be down about 20%, including some of the China bans. Mm -hmm. That I think is a good bottom for the industry. And so I think the strategy, the tactical strategy can be to wait for days when the market is volatile and feeling some pressure to add to some of the best in breed in that industry. Why? Because the semiconductor equipment companies are very neutral with regards to what really is gonna be the driver of semiconductor demand whether it's automotive, whether it's data center, whether it's factory automation, it doesn't really matter because the semiconductor equipment used is the same for all of those applications. Right. Um, and then the other thing that we're seeing that's a different dynamic is that in the past, you only had demand really for the leading edge equipment that, were make, that was making the latest and greatest, fastest and, and smallest chip. But actually now you're seeing almost a 50-50 um, a split um, on the logic side between state-of-the-art technology equipment and then older equipment, older generations of equipment that be, can be used to make simple chips like the microcontrollers and the analog parts that we talked about. Yeah. So Which that's is, shortages have been the worst, right? Is in this right. That's absolutely right. So I think that the, the volatility that's um, been a problem for the equipment industry in the past is much less than what it was. The companies are very, very well capitalized. You mentioned a company like ASM Lithography based in the Netherlands. They make lithography equipment. They basically have almost no competition in the world other than a little bit from Nikon in Japan. Mm -hmm. And you cannot make five and three nanometer semiconductors without their lithography tools. Um, and there's big technology barriers. The company's very well run. Um, very, very strong margin. So that is a company that had corrected substantially right. and we felt like it had really discounted a lot of the negative news. Yeah, it's uh, I, I, well, maybe at the risk of oversimplification, the way I always think about this is um, over time, will we use more chips or less chips? Like that's that's like that's a trivial question, right? Will you over time, we will likely use more chips. If we're not using more chips, something more fundamental is going wrong in the economy, right? So so I just think from a long-term perspective, this is a very compelling story. So I want to, um, so we're running a little short on time. I want to do sort of a, we'll call it a lightning round of okay. other names uh, that I'd love to get your, your thoughts on that I know uh, that you have a position in. Um, so uh, one that's sort of related that is a little less known that uh, is, in, is in a related space is a company called Keysight. Uh, which uh, I think was once a part of Agilent, which was once a part of HP. So, um, so, so uh, they're like a test and measurement business, right? How do they? Had what makes them appealing? 
So Keysight is an, uh, a company that we've owned for quite some time. We really like Keysight a lot in the sense that it has a very, very strong management team, but its core competency is indeed, as you say, in test and measurement. So one of the traditional ways that it gets uh, paid is through its testing and measurement of 5G networks, which of course are still uh, going up all around the world. They test all the 5G and actually 4G networks in the world, Wi-Fi networks, and that's a very, very strong business for them. They also do automotive tests. So as we have more and more electrification of vehicles, there are actually more testing points within that process of manufacturing as well. And they are involved in factory automation. So this is an area that we, we like quite a bit because it's not so much um, a function of how many units of 5G are deployed in a given year, how many base stations right. are bought, but really just the quality of the network and the quality of the output of, a, of, a, uh, of any kind of uh, factory automation as well. So on the topic of 5G, um, another name that you, you've liked is American Tower. And of course, these this is one of a handful of companies that do just what the name implies. They run, uh, they run cell phone towers. Um, you would think, at least on the surface, that they should benefit as 5G spreads, but uh, this seems like a direct 5G play. What, what's, your, what's your thinking on the company? So American Tower and, and, and the other tower players in the United States are what I like to call giant cash registers in the sky. Mm -hmm. Their business is so good because they basically sign 10, 8, 10-year 10 leases with an AT&T or Verizon um, to maintain their towers for them, taking them for nests and things off their towers. But they also get rental escalators if the company decides to switch out from 3G to 4G or 4G to 5G. And so this tends to be a, a, a very lucrative business. Um, and then American Tower has also decided to take that recipe for success and copy it in newer areas um, where we're way behind in 5G penetration relative to the United States. Places like Mexico, Brazil, Ghana, Germany, South Africa. The company has gone all, um, all around the world to search out where it can maintain towers for carriers as well. This is not a one year 50% business, next year down 10% business. It's a very steady business mm -hmm. with deviation maybe of one or two percentage points within the United States and a mid single digit grower in the, in the United States. And then um, around double digits in its international markets. The company generates an enormous amount of free cash flow. It is a REIT, so it can be very sensitive as it has been this year to uh, rising rates. Mm -hmm. uh, but if we have reached a point where rates may begin to flatten out or stop going up as fast, the core fundamentals at American Tower remain very, very much intact. And they are another company that um, has just beaten expectations. And I think we'll see accelerating revenue growth in 2023. Okay. One other one I wanted to, to have you touch on, uh, which I suspect not everyone knows, is a, a company called Mercado Libre, which is a, uh, it's been around a long time, actually. It's, a, it's kind of, a, uh, I originally thought of it as sort of the Latin American version of eBay, but it's actually a little more than that. Um, and uh, I'm I'm fascinated that it's a stock that you like. Give me your your thinking on uh, on Mercado Libre. Melly is the ticker on Mercado Libre. Melly is the ticker. Uh, so Mercado Libre has been a name that we have held at Genesis Associates for quite some time. 
The management team at Mercado Libre is superb in our opinion, very strong execution during difficult times. And I would say that actually Mercado Libre is more like an Amazon of Latin America. Um, very strong distribution networks into um, various parts of, uh, of Latin America. And what I would say is that the company has also gotten into the payment part of the business, which is a very lucrative part of the right. business too. So it's really stuck to its knitting. Other companies have tried to get into this market to compete with Mercado Libre and ultimately had to retreat um, to lack of understanding of some of the, uh, the logistical challenges within the region. And Mercado Libre has really emerged as the, um, the share consolidator in what's still a, a pretty early growth business. Um, so we, we remain very positive about Mercado Libre. Okay, so uh, the last thing I'll ask you to talk about um, brings us back to something you said early on in our chat, which was uh, opportunity in healthcare tech. And one of the names that you like there is Intuitive Surgical. That's also a name that's been around for a long time. I feel like Intuitive Surgical was once kind of a like a meme stock. Like there was sort of a point where it was very buzzy. Um, it was a very controversial name for a while. And I feel like no one talks about it so much anymore. And uh, but it it's still around and still doing interesting things. Talk a little bit about that one. So Intuitive Surgical, yes, has been around for a while. And we at Jenison have been long-term shareholders of Intuitive Surgical. It's another company with a superb management team and a very deep bench that we, we appreciate. And effectively, what Intuitive Surgical does is it makes robots for surgery. So, and the idea is that if you can have a surgery that is minimally invasive, your recovery time will be less, the chance for infection will be less. Um, and so people can get a knee replacement or a hip replacement right. um, using a robot with much greater precision than a human. Um, and Intuitive Surgical has best of breed products. There is competition in this business, but we've been impressed with their ability to really stay a few generations above the competition. And the company has most recently been outperforming relative to expectations on the earnings front too. Is that, is there, I would presume that sensitivity to economic trends, to some of those, the kinds of macro issues that afflict sort of the broader technology industry should be a little bit lower here, right? If you need any replacement. I would say that um, there are probably two factors, one positive, one negative. The positive factor would be that, of course, during COVID, a lot of these elective surgeries were put off, so there is a catch-up element to it. That's positive. On the other hand, some of the equipment is leased or financed. So as you have higher borrowing costs, that could be a, a negative factor. Um, however, the overall picture right now, the order picture does look very good. The other thing that bringing our conversation full circle, as Intuitive Surgical was one of the companies that was impacted by shortages of semiconductors as well. Right. So between the people who put off elective surgeries and the inability to procure semiconductors at the rate that was where, where demand was, I think we should have a pretty good uh, short-term and longer-term performance from Intuitive Surgical. Okay, we are way over time. Okay. Thank you, uh, uh, Erica, for joining us today. I'm so glad you were able to do this. Thanks thank you for having me. Thank you. And thanks, everyone, for, uh, to, who joined us today. 
Uh, please join us again tomorrow. Uh, Market Watch reporter Emily Barry will be interviewing uh, Moffat Nathanson analyst Lisa Ellis and Mizuho analyst Dan Dolev, uh, talking about uh, the, the uh, outlook for fintech and the payments sector. Thanks to everyone for being with us. Be well, stay safe, and have a happy new year. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.